Welcome to BIV Today, our weekly business podcast from Business in Vancouver and BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, the CEO and President of the Business Council of British Columbia joins me. Greg Davignon will share his thoughts on how BC's economy is expected to perform in 2020. First, we have a number of exciting events coming up. More information on all of them is available at BIV.com slash events. Compared with Silicon Valley, Vancouver has progressive immigration policies and relatively low wages. It makes the city and the region a serious draw for international tech firms looking to capitalize on the technology boom. On January 22nd, we have a great panel of experts speaking on just how exactly tech migration is going to morph and shape and influence our economy north of the border. This is the first event of 2020 in our ongoing BIV Talk series presented by the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. Tickets are also available for BIV's 40 Under 40 Awards Gala. You can join us January 30th at the Westin Bayshore as we celebrate young entrepreneurs, professionals, and executives from a wide range of sectors. Profiles of this year's cohort are available online, as is more event information. And on February 4th, a conversation with UK Information Commissioner Elizabeth Denham, BC's former Privacy Commissioner. She'll be joining us to talk about privacy going mainstream, the ethical implications of AI, and on holding multinational corporations to account for privacy and data breaches. For more information on these events and all the other ones we have coming up this year, visit BIV.com events. Non-residential investment and service sector growth are both expected to drive BC's economy this year. Many economists expect the province to once again lead the country in terms of economic growth. The Business Council of British Columbia expects real GDP growth of 2.2% this year. That said, the province still faces some serious growth and economic challenges. BCBC President and CEO Greg Davignon joins me now to talk about what we can expect from the year ahead. Greg, thanks as always for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Let's start with BC's growth story. If it happens, why is BC's economy expected to outperform provincial counterparts this year? Well, I think there's a myriad of reasons why there's an opportunity for BC to outperform. And most of it is based on the fundamentals of the BC economy. We're the most diversified economy in Canada. And we're also exposed as an open trading economy to the upside uh, in the short term of um, growth, particularly in Asia and South Asia. And so fundamentally, we see a couple of key drivers in the economy this year. One is that we have certainly over the last 20 years, an unprecedented level of capital infrastructure that's being spent uh, and built um, over the next year. Specifically, um, we're well underway on uh, building the Trans Mountain Pipeline as well as LNG Canada's LNG export facility and the CGL pipeline that will supply that. Uh, in addition to that, there's a significant amount of public sector spending that's taking place in infrastructure, a myriad of hospitals, bridges, roads, and other infrastructure that combined all will contribute significantly to the economy. Moreover, uh, the IMF just recently increased its uh, global growth initiative with the initial phase one agreement between China and the United States on their trade dispute, which has lifted markets but also lifted export prospects uh, globally moving forward, and that benefits 
British Columbia, specifically through the Gateway, and people fail to realize that as uh, the gateway, not just to British Columbia, to the Pacific, but most of North America, uh, is an opportunity that really has a de- uh, demonstrable impact to the economy of British Columbia through everything from the ports to rail and the associated jobs and investment required to drive both the imports and the exports through our uh, port and infrastructure facilities of uh, transportation. Mm-hmm. Looking back at the year we just had, the council revised downward growth projections three times in 2019. I'm curious what happened or what didn't happen that wasn't necessarily expected, and how has this shaped your 2020 outlook? Well, I think you have to put that in an international context. Um, it's my view that we're starting to live in a Hobbesian world, and for those that didn't get a chance to read Leviathan, it's that dog-eat-dog-eat world of <laughs> high competition, tribalism, self-interest. Uh, we see it every second in the United States through the Trump administration, but it's manifesting all over the world for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, you see it in Brexit, you see it in China's rise that people thought that they would move into the democratized economy of the world and that's not happening. You see Russia acting as an independent agent, uh, obviously um, countries in the Middle East doing the same thing. And uh, as a consequence, that's created great uncertainty and disruption in global supply chains, in global growth. Uh, And then you're also seeing a variety of very um, uneven reactions to climate change, which is also adding complexity to global growth moving forward. You see the United States ramping up their energy exports, where other jurisdictions like Canada are looking at ways to try to mitigate climate moving forward. And uh, on top of that, there's high indebtedness in Canada as well. And the housing complex slowed dramatically, in part because of global uncertainty, but also because of some of the public policy that governments put into place to tamp down uh, demand in the market. And construction plays a big role in BC's economy, and that had a a more outsized role than most economists were anticipating. So we enroll all those things up. There was a lot of volatility in 2019 that continued to put downward pressure on growth and downward pressure on uh, BC's ability to continue to grow in that environment. Is the expectation that we see that volatility intensify in 2020? Well, I think we're living, as I said a moment ago, in a world that's very uncertain uh, geopolitically, economically, and from a trade perspective. That Hobbesian nature is that people act in their self-interest. And you're also seeing, um, largely driven by technology and some of that tribalism, uh, significant amounts of disruption and deflation that are taking place. Um, at the at the end of the day, every day forward is going to be more disrupted by technologies and new transformations. Um, in Las Vegas just last week, they had the Consumer Electronics Show, which is showing in- increasingly more and more automation, robotics, Uh, and AI applications in our daily lives. And at the end of the day, that has disruption in terms of uh, jobs. It has disruption in terms of uh, economic impacts uh, and disruption in terms of the way that we go about living our lives. And so that's not going to abate. It's only going to increase. And that's where I think um, specifically British Columbia and Canada need to start to recognize these global forces and start to be much more purposeful in the way that we act, much more strategic in the way that we drive our economy, 
and much more aggressive and competitive in terms of how do we double down on the things that we have strategic strengths in and be purposeful about supporting them moving forward. And that takes me into one thing I want to ask you about. We spoke for an article that's now live on BIV.com about what to expect from the economy in BC in 2020. And one thing you noted is that there are a number of challenges. What would you point to in terms of potential weaknesses or vulnerabilities in BC's economy for 2020? Well, I think some of the weaknesses uh, will be that, you know, at any given day, you saw it with uh, the U.S. actions in Iran uh, in the last week uh, and how that draws the world into crisis or on the brink of crisis. Those kinds of, you know, black swan uh, moments, I think, are going to be more frequent in the future. And as a small open trading economy, we're vulnerable to those shifts and changes around geopolitics and the economic consequences therein. So we need to be prepared for those kinds of circumstances. Um, <clears throat> but moving forward, um, what we need to, uh, in my view, think about in 2020 and in the few years ahead, again, back to my point about being more competitive, more purposeful, and more strategic, is we've seen an erosion over the last seven or eight years in Canada in the fundamentals that are necessary for us to be productive and competitive. We're seeing um, significant cumulative effects of additional taxes at the municipal, provincial, and federal level that are making it a less attractive place to put capital. Uh, We're seeing uh, a continual addition and, I would say, fragmentation of the regulatory environment, which makes things very complicated and difficult to do. The World Economic Forum has downgraded Canada's competitiveness over the last two years from 10th to 14th. And a lot of that downward uh, ranking in Canada and BC in many instances is a significant contributor to that downward ranking. It's just the continual piling on of regulation that make it very complicated and difficult to get things done. Everything from six years in the city of Vancouver to get a permit to build housing that we desperately need because of high immigration rates uh, through to the ability uh, to get things permitted to build the infrastructure we need like pipelines or roads or bridges that can take 10 to 13 years. And in other jurisdictions, uh, it can take a third of that time. And at the end of the day, capital goes to where it's easier and more certain to get things done. And we're at risk of losing that kind of capital to be able to build the society and the quality of life we want. I think it's fairly well documented and our audience would be well aware of some of the things various levels of government could do to make our region more competitive. Is there anything you think elected leaders could do to reduce some of the uncertainty that may be within or even without of their control to make this more of a a certain, predictable, stable region in which to invest? Well, you know, Canada is not going to be able to change global uncertainty and some of the geopolitics and self-interest going on in that Hobbesian world I talked about. Mm -hmm. But we can be purposeful about controlling the things we can control, which is how do we create a tax model for the 21st century? Uh, The PST, for example, in British Columbia was brought in in 1949, and the Queen is meeting with her grandsons today around the future of the monarchy. She was a princess when those tax uh, policies are brought into place, and heaven knows that the economy of British Columbia and the world has changed dramatically since then. So it's a tax that uh, really 
um, is a barrier to investing and creating productivity and and wealth and ultimately higher wages in the economy. So we really need to think through as a society, how do we build tax for a digital economy of the 21st century? The second is regulatory efficiency. So for example, um, you know, there's still people that go around with clipboards and fill out forms in four-part form that go into different departments and in-trays, and you wait and wait and wait to get that material back. Uh, There's much better ways to do that. Uh, I can go online today and purchase anything I want anywhere in the world instantaneously. But when you go through government, it can take months to be able to get that done. So there's ways for governments at the municipal and provincial level to embrace technology and start to use it in ways that don't cut corners and maintain the quality and standards of regulation we want, but do it much more efficiently. We can use virtual reality and augmented reality to do planning on large-scale permitting. We can use uh, AI and other decision-making tools that take human error and bias out of the equation. So those are all things that we could get going on today uh, that ultimately make us better off uh, than we are uh, under the current circumstances without cutting corners. And then the last thing that we can do is um, one of the untold stories over the last couple of years, Canada now is experiencing immigration rates that we haven't seen since integrated records were being kept in the early 1970s. Mm. Uh, We had over 500,000 people come to Canada last year between uh, typical immigration patterns, ministers' uh, permits, as well as student visas and other uh, refugees that come into the country. And immigration is a good thing. But the problem is, is that most of those individuals go into major metropolitan centers like Vancouver, Montreal, and um, and Toronto. And we're not thinking about integrated planning around how we move people, how we bring them into the economy, and how we integrate them from a housing perspective. It's all disaggregated. And now is the time for us to control that uncertainty where we need more people to grow the economy, but we need to make them more productive. We need to make sure they've got housing that's affordable, and we need to make sure we've got mobility and transportation to support them. So rather than thinking in 20-year increments about how we build out transit, why don't we create a big vision and start to build that out every year and then build densified housing around those transit corridors? And in the case of the Lower Mainland, start thinking about the Lower Mainland from Pemberton to Hope as opposed to from uh, West Vancouver to the Langley border. And the reality is that we're seeing out-migration from uh, Metro Vancouver into the Fraser Valley, the Okanagan, and the island. And you could make those same applications of thinking in more integrated ways in uh, the region from north of Nanaimo to the South Island, as well as the Thompson-Okanagan region in a more integrated fashion. There's a lot of private capital that could be invested to make a higher quality of life. But instead of taking six years to get a building permit, why don't we make it 18 months? And we could build out the rental housing we need and do it in a way where childcare, education, and elder care are all closely uh, in proximity to where people live and work and play and improve the quality of life and make this a more innovative economy as a result of living and working in the same jurisdiction. To be successful on some of these initiatives and strategic planning that you mentioned, does leadership necessarily need to come from the province or could it come from municipalities or regional bodies? Well, I think that at the end of the day, um, this isn't all about business saying government needs to fix this. I think those days are gone. 
Uh, I view this as a what I would call a collaborative democracy where business has to step up. We need to create investment to improve productivity that will uh, raise wages in the economy. Right now in Canada, uh, Canadian businesses are inv- investing 53 cents of every uh, U.S. dollar compared to the United States on productivity-enhancing capital. And that only means we're going to get further and further behind and wages are going to be lower and lower over the course of time. So business has a role to play in this. Governments have a role to play. But we need to stop, uh, I would say, thinking in small, parochial, self-interested ways where we compete against one another for who gets a bus route and who gets a train and what kind of train uh, we're going to use to move people around. And we need to start to think bigger and more holistic and collaborative terms. And that means business at the table. It means uh, provincial governments at the table, federal governments at the table, and frankly, municipalities starting to work more collaboratively on a bigger picture as opposed to the self-interest parochial nature that they've got. We've got some municipalities in the lower mainland right now that don't want to build anything. Yet, as I said, there's uh, anywhere from 50 to 70,000 people a year coming into Metro Vancouver, and that just isn't sustainable uh, if we don't have an integrated plan around housing and quality of life and transportation and infrastructure that's much bigger than what we're thinking about today. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of sectors I want to ask you about specifically. The first is forestry, a sector that has really struggled in British Columbia over the last year and last couple of years. To what extent do challenges in that sector affect the broader BC economy in your view? Well, forestry is a great example of all of these things rolled into one basket. So um, <clears throat> the forest sector is facing challenges because of things outside of their control. Uh, two specifically was the pine beetle epidemic that we saw devastate an area greater than the size of Belgium, in particularly in the interior of British Columbia. And then secondly, we've had about five years of forest fires that in an unprecedented way have built, pardon me, burned just in the last couple of years over 2.7 million hectares of land. And so that's taken fiber out of the supply that is able to supply the mills and the workers and the companies around British Columbia. And we've known that was going to happen for quite some period of time, but like typical uh, people, we always wait till there's a crisis to do something about it. Um, But the other things that are happening is we've had a layering on back to taxes and costs and regulation and uncertainty that have exacerbated the problem. And um, what's why this matters is that forestry is BC's largest export and exports pay the bills that uh, afford us the opportunity to be able to import pharmaceuticals and automobiles and iPhones and all those things that we want as a society. And if we don't have a healthy forest industry, we're all going to suffer as a consequence, not just people that work in the forest sector themselves or the communities that are reliant on them. And so the consequence is, in forestry, we need to be very pointed around how we create a competitive uh, marketplace uh, for the BC forest industry of the future. It will consolidate uh, and be a bit smaller, but it's still going to be about 20% of the North American supply of uh, products um, that support housing and other other wood-based infrastructure. The second part of it is that we need to be more specific around how we uh, fundamentally support communities that are going to have a transition out of what have been probably centuries-long businesses in their community. We're going to have fewer mills that are going to have to be a bit more efficient going forward. So how do we purposely reskill and retool people that are in the sectors in those communities so that they can have a thriving 
economy for the future. And then lastly, how do we make sure that other sectors that are going to run into those issues down the road because of externalities uh, aren't subject to the same crisis that the forest industry has been? So how do we prepare uh, for things that we know are going to happen down the road? We've got some mines that are going to get to end of life in the next seven to ten years and start to take this learning and apply it proactively to those circumstances that may evolve over the course of the next decade. Mm-hmm. You mentioned housing, which was the other area I wanted to ask you about. The latest CMHC data says housing starts in 2019 for Greater Vancouver up about 20% year over year, but that's just one stat. If we dig in a little bit deeper, where does BC's housing sector find itself at the start of 2020? Well, I think you've got uh, both lag and, and some uh, um, market consequences taking place, particularly in the latter part of 2019. Um, when new policies came into place under the previous BC Liberal government and then some municipalities put uh, regulations in place around uh, particularly rental housing, it made it very, very difficult and very uncertain for uh, developers to um, uh, continue on and build projects. So you saw a bunch of product coming onto the marketplace uh, in 2019 that was, you know, seven years into the process, uh, the permitting had been taken place and the construction had started. But what you saw was also a lag over the last three years of people starting new projects in many respects, particularly in rental housing, ironically, where um, we have a huge demand for rental housing, but it's so complicated and the math just doesn't work under some of the, I would say, fractured policies at the municipal provincial level moving forward. But that demand that I talked about earlier of 70,000 people a year coming into British Columbia uh, is going to continue to to uh, come unabated. And it's going to have a whipsaw effect, I think, in 2020 and 2021, where you're going to, you're already seeing as of quarter four of last year, um, an increase in prices, particularly in the lower end of the market, multifamily. And that's only going to continue to rise and drive prices uh, over the course of the next 18 months. So we're going to be back into this narrative of rising house prices and higher costs for housing. And I would say in many instances, that's an inability of public policymakers to anticipate how they create certainty for investment to develop rental housing, multifamily housing, to do permitting in a much more condensed way, and to think about it back to my comment earlier on integrating it with proper transit and mobility so that people can live and work in an affordable way moving forward. In closing, Greg, what would you say is the economic narrative for businesses in BC in 2020? The economic narrative, I, I mean, we've got such a diverse economy. There's going to be people that are doing really, really well as a result of uh, aspects of the economy. We didn't get into the things that were quite strong on, like precision medicine and transformative technologies and quantum and blockchain, um, <clears throat> and obviously our natural resources. The one key driver, I think, that increasingly is going to come to play an important role in British Columbia, particularly from an economic perspective and a social perspective, is climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been doing work here at the Business Council with the province for the last two years on something we call the low-carbon industrial strategy. And when you take a look at our exports, 75% of them come from commodities and energy that the world wants. So, for example, electronic vehicles, or pardon me, electric vehicles take four times more copper than a combustion engine. And so we produce a lot of the materials that the world needs in a transition to a low-carbon economy. Our LNG is the lowest GHG-intensity LNG in the world, and that has to fuel Asia and South Asia primarily 
as we get out of coal and higher emitting uh, energy sources. Um, and so we've done a bunch of quantification with the province, validating it with third parties. And on average, those exports are a half the GHG intensity of other jurisdictions competing products. So to put it another way, if you bought more natural resources from British Columbia and more energy from British Columbia, you'd actually be reducing climate change compared to if you purchased it from other jurisdictions, whether it's gas from BC compared to the Gulf Coast, or whether it's met coal that makes steel from British Columbia compared to that of Australia. But the problem is, and I've alluded to it earlier, is that we have a real competitiveness problem, as much as 87% less competitive, which means that if I'm going to invest money, I'm investing it somewhere that is more competitive. So, you know, we're in the third or fourth quartile for competitiveness, and therefore a shift shuts down or a capital investment doesn't get made that makes us less productive over time. So the opportunity for us in British Columbia is actually to live the Paris Agreement and become the low-carbon supplier of choice, create wealth that can be reinvested back into competitive companies here in British Columbia to drive down our domestic emissions, but also create new technologies and new firms that can be the drivers of the economy for Canada and British Columbia into the future. Companies like uh, Carbon Engineering and Squamish, companies like MindSense, uh, that are fundamentally um, transforming different sectors in the natural resource and energy industry. Uh, we could be a leader in methane capture and carbon sequestration, which are going to be key and vital uh, industries into the future. Or things like nature-based sequestration, working with First Nations on reforestation and new technologies that can sequester carbon in agri-food and agriculture. Those are all the things that are happening in British Columbia, but unless we're competitive, they're going to happen somewhere else as opposed to here, and we'll all be the worse off for it. Can we be a leader or become that low-carbon supplier of choice with a tax on carbon emissions? Well, we can. I mean, the problem that we've got is that uh, BC did the right thing back in 2007 and 2008. In fact, uh, we were the host for Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger and then Premier Campbell to sign the Western Climate Initiative, which included um, putting a price on carbon. Then the economic crisis happened in 2008. Nobody else did it except BC. And in those days, we were very supportive of of the carbon tax because it was revenue neutral. It sent a signal that you should reduce your carbon footprint, but it, it still enabled you to be competitive. Well, what we've seen over the last 11 years is that nobody's... put a price on carbon, or very few people have put a price on carbon, and we're way out in front of the rest of the world. In fact, we just did some analysis on this, and the average price of carbon in North America is about 40 to 42 cents, and BC is going to go to $40 April 1st. So it's not to say that we should stop um, moving forward on carbon pricing, but you need to do what everyone else in the world has done except BC, which is to protect energy-intensive trade-exposed industries so that they can go to market and not have to internalize that cost. We've got some companies in British Columbia that pay as much as $80 million a year in carbon tax, and their competitors and or some of their own operations in other parts of the world pay nothing. And so it means $80 million less that you can invest in higher wages or expanding your facilities or reducing your domestic emissions. And the consequence of it is that um, 
Uh, we're seeing capital leave British Columbia in a myriad of sectors because there's uh, more opportunity to get a return on that capital elsewhere compared to BC. Despite the fact, as I said earlier, we could be a low-carbon supplier of choice in part because of our hydroelectric backbone and some of the regulatory and technology uh, deployment that we have in BC. So we need to fix that. And um, Canada fixed it uh, part of the way through 2019 by creating a national what's called backstop program that uh, protects energy-intensive industries by 80 to 90 percent. It was supported by people like the Pembina Institute and Clean Energy Canada. And we think that that should be done in British Columbia as well. And it'll allow us to get on our front foot and really solve, I would say, the most pressing problem of our time, which is the intersection of climate and energy and how we actually uh, transition to a lower carbon world. Greg Davignon is the president and CEO of the Business Council of BC. Greg, as always, thank you so much for joining the show and thanks for coming on with your insights. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. We're also on Spotify. And all of our episodes are available at BIV.com slash audio. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week.